in Matthew 21. So at the end of the last chapter that we were in, verses 45 to 46, they knew that Jesus was talking right to them. The scripture tells us that. When Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven will be taken away from you and will be given to people who produce fruit. A heart transformation which leads to a life of action, a, li a life of fruit bearing. The kingdom of heaven will be taken away from you. I mean, if I stood up here and told you that, you'd probably get your defenses up against me too. And it's been pretty clear in his interactions that the old religious ways of life, Jesus' interactions with others, that the old religious ways of life, they're being ushered out and there's a new kingdom on the horizon. There's a new kingdom that's coming. It's a kingdom marked by love and devotion for God. It's a kingdom where, where the subjects put on the wedding cloak. They live lives of faith and love. And it's not about outward appearances anymore. It's not about what you can do for God. It's about an inner transformation that takes place. This is the kingdom of Jesus. And this teaching makes the Pharisees uneasy. And they're looking for ways to get rid of Jesus. Again, in Matthew 22, Jesus makes it very, very clear that few will respond this way. That few will respond to the message. And, and the way of Jesus is an affront to the religiosity of the Pharisees, yes. He's, whole, he's running against everything that they hold dear. He, 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 his message is making them uncomfortable. Excuse me. And I think his message also should make us uncomfortable. The message of Jesus should be an affront to everything we in the West hold dear. The message of Jesus should make us, you and I, very uncomfortable. When faced with this discomfort, what is the reply of the Pharisees and their disciples? They employ a distraction method. Instead of engaging Jesus on the issues of the heart, they're happy to talk about things that are unimportant, that don't hold any eternal significance. They bring up taxes and politics. And so what do you do when Jesus brings something up to you? When all of a sudden your comfort, knowing that it's not the right way to live, or, or maybe you're ignoring the message of Jesus, and Jesus just comes and he shows up and he confronts you. Maybe he confronts you with the scripture. Or maybe, uh, maybe he confronts you uh, through a sermon on Sunday, and you feel the Holy Spirit speaking to your heart, that your way of life is all of a sudden incompatible with the way of life that Jesus prescribes. What do you do? According to the scripture, when the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin, we're supposed to confess it, and cling to Jesus, and to turn away from our sin. But I think oftentimes when the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin, and I speak as one of us right now, guilty as could be, i got to preach myself before I could ever preach to you, I think oftentimes what we do is we ignore him. He begins pressing on our heart. He begins forcing us into an uncomfortable realm of life, and what do we do? We just ignore it. We recognize that we're in folly. We recognize that we're in sin. But it's easier if we just don't address it. If we never bring it up. If we don't confess that sin. It's just easier. Or what else do we do? We rationalize our sin. We rationalize our way of life. Even if it is in direct contrast with the way of Jesus. It's so easy to find somebody on the internet who agrees with you. You know? If you're doing something wrong, you can find a, a form on Reddit for people who delight in doing that wrong thing. It's so easy. 
But is it what Jesus wants? Or are we just being pharisaical? I think that's the right word. Are we just doing what the Pharisees are doing? Are we just throwing a smokescreen up? Sometimes God's calling you into deeper things of him. And you take it upon yourself to remind God that you're too busy the way that your life is currently structured for you to deepen your relationship with him or for you to serve in a new capacity in his church. Here's what's happening in this text. Lauren and I, we run a, a wedding videography company or a videography company. We do corporate work, but weddings. So if you've ever been to a wedding reception, by and large, most speech podiums are terribly lit. Now, that's a struggle for us if we want to take a video of that. So we have this spotlight. It's about eight inches long, but it's an absolute cannon. So during the reception, as everybody's kind of mingling, we plug this light in and we flick this light on. And this light hits the podium. And it's an abs like it, it's just insane the amount of light. Like you walk up there and it's like these lights. They're blinding. And so without fail, at every single wedding, somebody will come up to us and they'll be like, <laughs> excuse me. And I'll be like, what's up? And they'll be like, can you turn that light off? And I'm, it's usually a drunk groomsman. And I'm like, no, no, I need that light so I can film you. And people in the room need that light so they can see you. Please, it makes me uncomfortable. Uh, this is not about you, right? It's not your wedding today. The bride tells me to turn it off, I'll turn it off. But this is it. It's a bright light shining on us. And the word of God is like that to our hearts. It's a spotlight that makes us uncomfortable. Because it exposes the dark and the slimy and the dank corners of our souls. And when we hear the word of God preached, that light shines. And when we spend time reading the word for ourselves, that light shines. And when we pray, that light shines. And when the Holy Spirit speaks to us, that light shines. And we have to make the decision of what are we going to do as that light shines on the dark places of our souls. What's the decision that we're going to make? The Pharisees. They turn that light back on to Jesus. That light's exposing them. Throughout Matthew, it's been exposing them. And they turn it back to Jesus. That light's making me uncomfortable. So they deflect. They, they flee from the hard teachings of Jesus. And instead, they try to trap him so that they can get him killed. Jesus ain't no dummy. Verse 18. But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites! Why are you trying to trap me? Jesus knows what they're doing. He, they're, they're turning away the light from their corrupted hearts, shining it back on Jesus, and he recognizes the trap. And not just does he recognize the trap, he actually he recognizes their evil intentions and their evil motives, and he straight up calls them out for it. The question to Jesus is whether or not Jews should pay taxes to Caesar. So should, should these people pay taxes? taxes to their occupier, to those who are in military authority over top of them, ruling over top of them. Jesus is put into a lose-lose situation. Here, let's break it down. If Jesus rep responds to them, no. If he says, no, you do not need to pay your tax to Caesar, what he's doing is he's declaring a revolution against Rome. Jesus is all of a sudden, uh, or, or, or the coin used to pay this tax, which is a denarius, it's a coin with Tiberius's head on it. And this coin indicates then that Tiberius, the inscription on it, uh, Tiberius is the son of the divine Augustus. And if this is true, and Jesus says you don't have to pay this, then all of a sudden he's saying, no, Tiberius is not the son of the divine Augustus. You do not have to pay this tax. Rome does not 
have the right to impose these rules and regulations over you. And as such, this revolution that he declares against Rome will have him promptly arrested and killed. Not long before Jesus, Judas the Galilean did just this. We learn about him in, in writings of history removed from the Bible, but we also learn about him in, in Acts chapter 5, where Gamil, a Pharisee, he lists Judas among those who had failed messianic movements. Doing no justice to my history minor, what Judas the Galilean did was essentially got him and his little band of followers together and said, we're not going to pay tax to Rome, and then led a mini revolt against Rome, and then were promptly killed and all crucified. So this is if Jesus replies no. He's going to follow in the footsteps of Judas the Galilean. If Jesus replies yes, pay that tax, he is proved as a weak revolutionary in front of all the people who are expecting him to deliver them from Rome. Remember the expectations for the Messiah to liberate God's people are at an all-time high. We, we preached through this at the triumphal entry when Jesus came into the city. That the expectations, like people are waiting for deliverance from this oppressing power. And if Jesus is like, yes, pay your taxes to them, all of a sudden everybody who believed in him is like, what? Jesus, really? Like, we're, we're supposed to submit to them? So Jesus is put in a lose-lose situation. It's funny, like, even after, like, Jesus is on his way. He has risen from the dead, and he's ascending into heaven, and his disciples are still like to him, uh, so, like, when's the time, Jesus? Like, when's liberation coming? Jesus is like, I literally rose from the dead, and you're still missing the point, right? Like, it's not just about this political liberation that you're so desperately seeking. And then he tells him to go wait for the Holy Spirit. So what does Jesus say? The lose-lose. He can't say yes, he can't say no. So the logical answer is to say, hey, really? Have you read this before? Good. We're going to read it now. Verse 19. Show me the coin, Jesus says, used for paying the tax. So they brought him a denarius, and he asked them, whose portrait is this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went. <coughs> so they left him and went away. Show me the coin used for paying this tax. And who produced it? The Pharisees. They produced the coin used for paying the tax. And they gave it to Jesus. And they, Jesus said, whose inscription, whose face is on this? Of course, it's a Roman coin. The words that were meant to trap Jesus, this impossible lose-lose situation, was actually used by Jesus to further his main point. The point that he's been making throughout his ministry, which is that what matters most is a transformation of the heart. Let me break down Jesus' response here into two points this morning. Let's read it one more time, and we're going to break it down into two points. Show me the coin used for paying the tax. So they brought him a denarius, and he asked them, whose portrait is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. When they, went, or when they heard this, they were amazed, and they left him and went away. The two points, quite simply, is the first one. God sees through your distractions. God sees through your distractions. We like to smoke screen God. 
to show him maybe all, all the incredible things that we like to do for him, you know, but we refuse to acknowledge what he's calling us into or what he's calling us out of. We put our relationship with God solely on our terms. You know, I control my relationship with God when I pray. This is about me, my personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You heard that before? My personal relationship with Jesus Christ. This is a relationship. This is a two-way street. It goes back and forth. What is God saying to you? How are you hearing from God? Like the Pharisees, Jesus begins to bring up issues of the heart. You know, like I was saying earlier, the Holy Spirit begins convicting us or the word is just screaming at us as we read it. And he's talking about the heart. He's talking about where, where our genuine devotion lies, where our love truly rests. These are the things that Jesus wants to dig up because he knows that true transformation begins in the heart. But we like to deflect. We like to turn the spotlight away. We like to say, look at all the good things that I did for you, Jesus. The liberation of the Jews from Roman rule was a really big deal for people at this time. It was the hot-button political issue. There, there were messianic movements, people rising up constantly in the years before Jesus, saying, I am the Messiah, follow me and I will liberate us from Rome. <laughs> Dead. Follow me, I will liberate us from Rome. <laughs> Dead. This is happening over and over. Everybody's waiting for the true Messiah to rise up, and here's Jesus. This is the hot button issue. It's on the front page of all the papers. But Jesus wasn't really concerned with it. He was more concerned about whether or not individuals would acknowledge God and that live their lives in response to God's goodness. That's what he cared about. Laura and I were dating for a number of months. This is some straight up relationship advice for all the men in the front row. We were dating for a number of months. And I remember we were sitting uh, in her car, which she drove me around all the time. Important fact. We'll get back to that in a second. She drove me around all the time because I didn't have a car at the beginning of our relationship. And we were sitting out front of <coughs> out front of the our bless me. Uh, <laughs> we were sitting out front of my house at the time, and she had welled up enough courage to address some of the relate or the relational issues in our relationship. And then, you know, like fighting back tears, she starts telling me about the ways that I had emotionally hurt her and about how our relationship was a little bit on the rocks and that she wanted to see it repaired and, and built back and made whole, you know, like all godly, wifely things. And uh, when it was my turn to talk, the first thing I did was remind her that she owed me 10 bucks for gas. Why? Why? <laughs> Don't do it. Shut up and listen. But I reminded her she owed me 10 bucks for gas. And then we went to another level, right? And then we had, to, we had to work through the, I drive you everywhere, Jordan. Got it. Yeah, my tail between my legs pretty darn quick. God bless her. She stayed. But what was I doing? I was deflecting. You know, she's digging up the raw emotional stuff that's sitting in my heart, you know? It's like, it's like that bottom layer of sewage that is just there all the time. And, you know, it spills out on the ones you love. And she's straight up addressing it. She's saying, Jordan, that's got to go. It's, it's time for a little Lysol in there, you know? A little Mr. Clean. Get the magic eraser. 
And I was like, <laughs> we're not dealing with that right now. Girl, where's that $10 gas money? That's a problem. But I think this is what we do all too often. That God begins to speak to us. We begin to hear clearly from him. And then we're like, uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. God, look what I do for you, right? Uh-uh, I'm not going to touch that now. You know, that sin is too secret. Or, or the fallout of other people knowing about this is too great. So then your heart never actually transforms. But you, you keep putting on that mask and you keep showing up and you keep doing your religious thing. And this is exactly what Jesus is against. The message he preached is transformation. One which leaves the self behind. One which puts God first. And there's nothing that we can do or say to distract God from what he wants from us. So God sees through our distraction methods. And if that's true, if God truly does see through the smoke screens that we put up, then what should our response to him be? Our response to him should start with humble confession. A, a humble confession of our attempts to thwart God's plans. Uh, it, it should start then after confession with a genuine search for what God is actually telling us. Free from our own uh, walls that we put up. Uh, take down the smoke. Take down the curtain. God, what are you actually saying to me? And then we begin to obey God, no matter how much it hurts, no matter how much, uh, how, how much grief comes with it. We begin to choose obedience. We make a choice to participate in the transformative process of Jesus renewing our lives. God sees through your distractions. Secondly, you're a citizen of two cities. Excuse me for one second. I've never like had a hundred people plus watch me drink water before. <clears throat> it's intimidating. You're a citizen of two cities. This spring I read uh, St. Augustine's massive tome, City of God. And in it, Augustine argues that Christians are citizens of two cities. You are a citizen of a heavenly city and of an earthly city. The earthly city is one where self-interest reigns supreme. It's one where power is lusted over and one man dominates over the other. The, the earthly city is life according to the everyday flesh in this world. Then there's the heavenly city. It's the city of God. It's, it's one where citizens prioritize the needs of others and where they strive toward equality under God. Where people recognize Christ's lordship for their life and they wait for the last judgment where the citizens of both cities will be separated eternally. So the earthly city. You and I are inhabitants of this earth. Many of us are citizens of Canada and residents of Manitoba. As such, there are demands on you which correspond with your presence in these societies. A postmodern political thought has taught an entire generation, really my generation, grew up like this. Uh, we, we were taught that citizen endows us with, with rights and privileges. But we often tend to forget that along with our rights come responsibilities. And let me say this clearly. You have responsibilities as a citizen of the earthly city. So Christians, pay your taxes. It's a biblical mandate from the mouth to see, uh, of Jesus. Give back to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. That coin's got his head on it, so give it back to him. Pay your taxes. Simply put, pay your property tax, pay your income tax, business owners, collect and remit your GST and PST, pay your taxes. Clear? 
You're a citizen of the earthly city. If even for a short time. But while you're here, uphold your responsibilities. You're also a citizen as a follower of Jesus. If you're in here and you're like, yes, for sure. I, I believe in Jesus. Like, I, I, I love Jesus. Jesus is the Lord and Savior of my life. If that's you, you're also a citizen of the heavenly city. Excuse me. Remember Jesus' words. Give to God's what is God's. Caesar forces us to give back to him what belongs to him. Your taxes are mandated. You, he forces you. But God does not force you to give him what belongs to him. Every human being is made in the image of God. And Jesus' instruction here in Matthew 22 is for us to give to God what belongs to God. If God made us, then we should be giving our lives back to him. We should be making God our everything. We should be allowing him to transform us away from our selfish desires. This process of heart transformation that we've been preaching about all throughout the book of Matthew, this is what we should be cleaving to. We should give back our lives to God and live that gift that he has given us well in his service. Here's the problem. When we forget about our heavenly citizenship, we end up making earthly things our priorities. When we forget about our heavenly citizenship, we begin making earthly things our priority. And my fear for many of you is that you're watching life pass by. That you haven't surrendered your life to Christ and, in, and you're not asking what sin is God calling me out of. You're not asking what purpose is God calling me into. You're simply worried about the next vacation or the next uh, home renovation or the next day at work. You've forgotten your head in heavenly citizenship and you're so focused on things of the earth, things that are temporary, things like paying taxes in the current political situation. Don't put up your hands, but like, how long have you spent reading articles about the political situation in the United States over the course of the last three years? Think about that for a second. Some of us are really, really good at being nominal followers of Jesus. Again, I'm preaching to myself. I'm convinced. I'm convinced that the biggest religious smokescreen that you and I can put up are the words, I'll pray about it. Hear me out. How often does God call you into something? And maybe he calls you directly through somebody else. Maybe God is speaking to you through somebody else. How many times does God call you into something and you're just like, I'll pray about it. If I had a dollar for every time I saw a gifting or passion in somebody in the last eight years and I said, you definitely need to be doing this and building God's church this way. And they were like, I'll pray about it. And I never heard from them again be rich. I'd give it back to Caesar. Yes, of course. Duh. I'd pay my income tax on that. Think about it for a moment. How often do we just cloak things in religiosity? How often do we just say, oh yeah, I'll pray about it. Pastor Jerry often remarks, 
You don't need to pray about stacking the chairs at the end of the gathering. It's like, are you in this community? You know, are you an owner? I sat our summer students down. We have, we have nine summer students, praise God. And we sat around the table. And I said to them, if you're on staff here, you're going to do a couple things. The first thing you're going to do is clean your bedroom, which means you're going to go to all those fractured relationships in your life. And if you're on staff at this church, you're going to start cleaning them up. And it might be a really long process, but you're going to clean your bedroom. You're going to go say sorry. You're going to go say, I forgive you. You're going to start the work of reconciliation because Christ calls us to that. You're not going to be effective in ministry until you clean your bedroom. The other thing I said was you're going to go confess your sin. Because if you're a part of this team, you need to have a right heart before God. You can go confess your sin to any Christian. We're all uh, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. So we all operate in priestly duties if you are a Christian. So somebody can confess their sin to you. And the last thing I said is you're going to take ownership of this place. There's no I'll pray about it here. It's like we are on mission for what God is calling us to do, which is change lives with the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And there's no time to stop and pray about it because God's already called us to it. So what are we going to do? We're going to do it. We're going to own this place. And ownership looks like all sorts of different things. Ownership looks like cleaning up the pee on the urinals. Ownership looks like cleaning the goose poop off the front entrance when you show up early to work one day. Or you show up late. I don't care if nobody else cleaned it up. Ownership looks like cleaning it up. This is ownership. Ownership means people over projects. It means we might have a lot to do planning for Young and Wild Summer Camp. But as soon as there's a person who walks through the door of this building, you're going to go talk to them. You're going to go greet them. And you know what? You're probably going to go tell them about Jesus too. Because here's the thing. For the summer students at Soul Sanctuary and for everybody sitting here, is that the mission of Jesus, one of heart transformation, is too big and too important for us to throw up religious smoke screens. The message of Jesus is too important for us to say, I'll pray about it. For us to say, ah, no thank you, God. For us to, to ignore the light that's shining on our hearts. So what do we do? We're to respond to him. We're, <laughs> we're to respond to him in humility. And say, yes, Lord, if I never hear from you ever again, I already have enough in your scripture to know how to live my life and to know how to serve you. If I never hear from you again, I've got enough. I don't have to pray about it. I got enough. And so my invitation for all of you here is step one into allowing Jesus to shine light on your soul and transform you. Will you allow God to begin a redemptive work in your heart? Jesus Christ came. Uh, the scripture says that, that God sent Jesus while you were still a sinner. Christ died for you. There was nothing that you could do to earn your salvation in Jesus. But you do choose how you respond to the salvation that he has given you. So how do you choose to respond? Do you choose to respond by simply doing your religious duties and serving your time? Or do you choose to respond by becoming an owner of this place, of his church, his bride? What, what else would you want to be partnered with in this life? The reach of the local church. I mean, this church here. Look, look on the screens earlier. Like the work that's being done overseas. Pretty much on every single continent because of the body of believers here. Like, I want to be a part of that. I, I look at the, 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 the stories of life transformation that happen in this community. I want to be a part of that. Okay, totally not in my notes, but I'm going to go here for one quick second. It's like, 
Leah, who is up on stage, you know, practicing her hosting abilities today. I'm going to get through this without crying. Oh, my gosh, she's so embarrassed. <coughs> I'm so sorry, but not because people need to know. People need to know that two years ago, she showed up randomly to our youth ministry. And the first youth night she ever came to was at Pastor Jerry's house. And Leah tells the story that Lauren harassed her and scared her so much that Leah came to camp. Lauren was like, you got to come to camp. I know this is your first time here, but you got to come to camp. You got to come to camp. You got to come to camp. Leah comes to camp and has a life-transforming meeting with Jesus at camp. Like, I'm talking like this girl was like seeing visions, and I'm like, I don't know this girl. Like, what's going on here? She has this life-transforming meeting with Jesus at camp. Comes back. In October, she gets baptized. She's here practically every Sunday morning setting up the chairs. She was in grade 10, going into grade 11. She just graduated high school now. Like, talk about life transformation. I mean, I know her well. She ain't perfect, all right? It's true. I mean, I ain't perfect. We're all messed together. But, like, I look at what God has done in her life. And I'm like, she's been practicing speaking at youth. You know, she's, like, preaching the scriptures to her peers. She's hosting. She's, like, talking in front of people. And then this morning, she has an opportunity to come up here and lead us in prayer. And I'm thinking, like, how long has Jesus really had hold of your heart? I mean, I don't know about you, but I want to be a part of stories like that. Like, that, that's, that's what gets me going. So I ask you, will you respond to the call of Jesus? Will you allow him to shine a light on the dark places of your heart? Will you respond to him in humility, saying, yes, God, I confess my sin. I will leave. I will turn it behind me. I might not be able to do it by myself. In fact, you won't be able to do it by yourself. You need this community. You need a life group. You need spiritual mentors and pastors in your life to help you through these situations. But will you respond to him in humility and say, yes, God, to your plans. I'm going to shelf my priorities for a little bit. I'm going to pay my taxes while I'm at it, but I'm going to give my life to God because he has saved me. Will you do that? That's the question. And we all have to answer it for ourselves. I know the answer for me is, is cut and dry and it's clear. I want to be a part of this church and I want, to be, I want to be a part of what God's doing in this church in your life. I want to be a part of it. I just, man, I just want to sit on the sideline if God gives me that opportunity. So do you want to be a part of it? Are you going to own this place? Here's my wholehearted belief. That a small group of passionate people can change this community. My wholehearted belief is that a small group of passionate people can change this neighborhood, this city, this country. I mean, call me naive, but a small group of passionate people is the only thing that's ever changed anything. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, he said this. Give me 100 men. I'm going to include women in this. Uh, give me 100 men and women. <laughs> Give me 100 men or women who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God. And I care not whether they be clergymen or laymen, that they alone will shake the gates of hell and set up the kingdom of heaven upon the earth. I mean, that's what I want. That's what I believe. A small group of passionate people. My prayer is that for this, the soul sanctuary community, that within it rise up a small group of passionate people that shake the gates of hell. The image is storming the gates of hell. Hell ain't coming at me. I'm not being attacked. I'm attacking. I am on the offensive with my community. 
that we choose to put Jesus first in everything, that we choose to follow God with the expectation of the incredible things that he has in store for us. Let's pray. Father God, despite our folly and our sin, you choose to love us. Despite all the times that we turn the light away from our hearts and onto something that means nothing, you still choose to love us. Lord, your Holy Spirit is constantly knocking at the door. God, you're constantly challenging us through your word, through speaking to us. And so my prayer is that we as your church may respond to your call. God, that we may respond to your light. That we may, be, that we may begin the hard work, the transformative process of clearing out the gunk in our lives. Father, we submit to you. <coughs> and we continue to trust you in the refining process of our souls. That we may stand righteously in your sight. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me? In times of old, it's good because I'm getting snotty. In times of old, the one giving the blessing would extend hands and those receiving the blessing would do the same. So if you'd like a blessing here this morning, would you extend your hands with me? So sanctuary, as you go, may you remember that you are a citizen of two cities. May you go give back to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, aka go and pay your taxes. Yet at the same time, may you remember that your life is a gift from God and may you live that gift in service of the one who made you. May you go strengthened by the power of the Holy Spirit so that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith. And may you go with your heart set on Christ and not the distractions that this world has to offer. So go in peace, be blessed, and we'll see you next week.